Hello, and welcome to the American Thoracic Society Assembly of Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology podcast series. I'm Dr. Anna May, a pulmonary critical care and sleep physician at the Northeast Ohio VA Healthcare System. Today, we'll be talking all about hypoglossal nerve stimulation with Dr. Kingman Stroll. Dr. Stroll is a pulmonary critical care and sleep physician at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center and professor of medicine physiology and biophysics at Case Western Reserve University. He has held several leadership positions in the field, including division chief of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at University Hospitals and sleep medicine fellowship program director. Welcome, Dr. Kingman Stroll. Thank you. The first thing that we would like to know is what are the origins of this hypoglossal nerve stimulation therapy? Hypoglossal nerve stimulation is the stimulation of the motor nerve to the tongue to to be able to move it or stiffen it. And uh, this is not a new idea. In the 1980s, many uh, laboratories uh, here at Case, as well as Johns Hopkins and elsewhere, were looking at the motor control of the upper airway muscles in relation to the chest wall and to uh, the diaphragm. And the observations were made is that there's a vigorous respiratory activation of these muscles. And the clinical correlation was that Dr. Remmers in 1987 described how during an obstructive apnea, the EMG activity of the genioglossal muscle was reduced at the onset of an apnea and was vigorous when there was resumption of breathing. In the late 1980s, the Japanese group was able to stimulate the muscles of a dog and break an obstructive apnea and then tried it in humans. And Takashima and his group were able to create a device that would stimulate under the chin the muscles. The problem with that is that it woke people up. In the early 90s, we were asked by Medtronic as part of their development to see if we could put fine wire electrodes into the hypoglossal nerve of sleep apnea patients and see what happened if we stimulated it during sleep. And we were successful in being able to prevent apneas, but not to break an apnea. And this was done in three individuals. And it was a proof of concept that was published in Journal of Applied Physiology that this form of, of therapy uh, could be feasible. Uh, Medtronics developed a phase one study that involved Johns Hopkins University. We're able to demonstrate using older technology that it was feasible. There was problems with the devices in terms of the hardware, and because of uh, their uh, going on to other interests, they uh, let it uh, sit for a while until it was taken out of the company by a Medtronics employee uh, to form Inspire and uh, raise money and performed a clinical trial. But this interest in hypoglossal nerve stimulation was also uh, present in the commercial sector in the 90s. The Inspire system is the first one that got through the FDA trials and was approved by the FDA in April of 2014. So are there multiple devices that are uh, now available or in development for hypoglossal nerve stimulation? 
So one device that did not succeed in its phase three trial has is now dormant. There's Imthero, which is a, a another nerve stimulation device, which is in trials. And there are other devices in Europe that are now under development. So the concept of stimulating a nerve to be able to treat obstructive apneas has several lines of interest. But to this point, there's only one system that is FDA approved. And what patients are candidates for this therapy? So the INSPIRE system was based upon uh, observations in a phase two FDA trial in which they found that there was greater likelihood of success in people who had predominantly obstructive apneas because it doesn't treat central apneas. The apnea index ideally was between 20 and around 65. The reason the lower threshold was to really get around the argument that why would you need such a fancy device for mild sleep apnea. And the higher number was that there were other features in the patient that created uh, AHI greater than 65. So that's 20 to 65. Obese individuals that were greater than a BMI of 32 did not fare as well as thinner individuals. And at the time, there was interest in looking at the upper airway and how it closed with a procedure called drug-induced sleep endoscopy called DICE. And this particular procedure, the patient is uh, put to sleep briefly with midazolam or propofol. They observe how the airway collapses. And the observation was made somewhat empirically that if the nasopharynx, the velopharynx region, collapsed like a garage door, that is an AP collapse, that it was much more favorable than if it it collapsed like a camera shutter, that is with concentric collapse of that particular part of the airway. And so the criteria for better results resulted in an AHI between 20 and 65, a BMI less than 35, which is, uh, but there's a kind of a black box warning between 32 and 35, and this, uh, this favorable anatomy in the velopharynx. Can this be used as primary therapy for obstructive sleep apnea? Well, at the present time, it's not intended to be uh, primary therapy. It's not a choice therapy, in my opinion. It's not uh, CPAP, oral appliance, or Inspire therapy. There may get to be a point where it is easier, better, quicker, and, and with better technology. But at the present time, it is indicated for those people who uh, cannot or do not tolerate CPAP. And for those people who cannot or do not tolerate oral appliances, although the only requirement is really for the uh, CPAP intolerance. From a patient perspective, what's the process of getting a hypoglossal nerve stimulator activated and working correctly? So for the patient, they first are assessed by not only the inclusion criteria, the toughest of which is this uh, inability to use CPAP uh, because many people need to have re-education on it. There's new technology, and they should have a trial of CPAP. They should also have a recent study, preferably a polysomnography, that shows predominantly obstructive apneas. And then they uh, go through this procedure, this DICE, uh, with the ENT person who will implant the device. 
and their particular expectations then are presented to them after that evaluation as being a candidate for it. There are other criteria such as you should not be acutely ill in the last three to six months, that you should not have neurologic problems that would prevent the proper use or the optimal use of a nerve stimulator. And the patient goes through this process really after being diagnosed and treated with one of the primary therapies for some time. After the device is implanted, what is the uh, procedure to get it to be working correctly? So uh, it takes about a month for things to heal, maybe six weeks at the most. There are three incisions because there are three parts of this, of the Inspire implant, and we'll be talking primarily about the Inspire uh, system. It has the electrode. The electrode lead then is tunneled subcutaneously to the upper chest where there's a what's called an implantable program generator that is like a pacemaker, put it into a pocket in the top of the, the chest wall. And there is a lead that also is a sensing lead for pleural pressure as an indication of breathing. And that pressure sensor is put between the fourth and fifth rib of the intercostal space and is tunneled to the IPG. So there are three incisions, one for the electrode, one for the sensor, and one for the IPG. These are put together, and it takes a month for that to heal. And that surgery takes about two hours or so, and then is uh, recovery. After that period of time, patient is then uh, brought into uh, an outpatient setting, and then in an outpatient setting, the uh, physician who knows how to uh, activate the device using a tablet programmer and uh, a wireless uh, interrogator of the IPG to place the settings, see the range of stimulation that seem to produce the the best positioning of the tongue and gain some understanding of by the patient of what this feels like and what to expect. The most interesting part of this is that the patient really will not feel pain. They will really feel the tongue movement, which is involuntary. Uh, settings are then made of a range of settings that the patient can use at home. A remote that the patient has is given to them that they can place over the device and turn on. They can also pause it in the middle of the night, and they can turn it off in the morning. And they have some control over the amount of milliamps, the amount of power that is done for the stimulation effect. And after this month-long period, it sounds like they um, explore various settings on the device. So the instructions at that time are for the patient to go home and to really work on it for about a month. They are given this range of settings, which they should increase up to their tolerance, that is, to a point where they don't feel as though it is helping their sleep. It may be interfering with their sleep. They also are to report whether or not snoring and apneas are present if they have a bed partner. And their knowledge and enthusiasm for this device is then judged about a month or maybe six weeks later. And at that point, a reassessment of symptoms, a reassessment of their sense of well-being, their sleepiness, their snoring, and their comfort with this device is done. 
and they will be either sent home with a device to, to monitor their uh, breathing, like a home sleep test, or the adjustments will be made and they will be sent back to see how they respond to these new adjustments. There is a time in which the, the nerve may heal and that the electrode sits better on the nerve, and so the amount of energy that's needed is less, but that really is something that usually sorts itself out in the first two, three months. After the first two or three months, what is the follow-up for Inspire Therapy like? Now that it's post-approval, and there's now uh, experience with uh, in both Europe and the United States with uh, almost 5,000 devices, there is a range of follow-up pathways that people do. For those people in whom you're not sure that this is working very well, you might go directly to a polysomnography uh, in which the tablet is used to titrate the device while the person is asleep. This was the procedure that was done for the type 3 study. It's evolved to have more of an iterative use of home sleep testing. That is, often people will have home sleep testing first to see how the number of apneas and the oxygenation have changed with their optimal at-home settings. And then if there's a problem, you'll go on to a PSG. So that no longer is a PSG routine in the United States. Uh, it is more routine, more routinely used in Europe. What are the success rates for this therapy? So the initial success rates in the phase three was that there was 65% of patients had a reduction in their apnea hypopnea index by at least 50% to under 20 per hour. That's a surgical success criteria, and about 75 to 80% had a, a symptomatic improvement in their upward sleepiness scale and their quality of life measures for sleep. There have been post-approval uh, registry that called ADHERE has on 500 and now 750 patients, and the results are similar, but the use of the outcome measures that are objective, that is the uh, apnea hypopnea index is more a mixture of PSGs and home sleep testing. A manuscript on the first on the registry, including a thousand individuals that have been studied at six and 12 month inter intervals, uh, has just been accepted. And the the details there are interesting, and it looks like that women do better than men, and older people do slightly better than younger people but the, cause, the reasons for that are not clear. What kind of continuous follow-up would these patients receive from a sleep position after they were titrated and had adequate therapy? So the experience we have is really with the phase two and phase three trials. We just followed a person at the RVA that has had one for nine years. He was one of the first people in Ohio to have it. He's had his IPG replaced. And we saw him about every six months for a couple of years and then every year. In the follow-up that was more formal in the phase three studies, 72 individuals were followed up at five years and had a similar response rate in those 72 individuals. Either 65 to 70 percent had a, a significant reduction, 50 percent reduction in their AHI and uh, to below 20 
their symptomatic relief was similar to what they had at uh, one year. Uh, there are variations that occur in these individuals. So this particular study is the longest follow-up and the experience is that you need to pay attention to the particulars of sleep and weight and illness and comorbidity and medications, but that the follow-up by a sleep physician who can program this device or a uh, ear, nose, and throat person who has learned how to do this system and is aware of sleep or preferably is board certified in sleep can be following these people on a regular basis, somewhat like CPAP. And where do you see the future of hypoglossal nerve stimulation going? Well, I think that my enthusiasm for it, and I was I was involved in these studies, uh, phase two, phase three, I co-author in the, I think that this is now a fairly well-established secondary line of therapy and an option. What it has energized my thinking is the importance of the muscles in general in the pathogenesis of sleep apnea. So we're now talking about a causal pathway, that is a reduction in EMG activity, and that we've targeted a hypoglossal nerve. But that's probably pretty both naive as well as pretty narrow. The seems to work because it opens the nasopharynx. And so the next series of devices that are that are looked at, and including those that are just focused on the hypoglossal nerve, uh, will really need to pay attention to what it does to the multi-site obstruction and obstructive sleep apnea. The second thing this does is really energize, I think, the idea that you can treat the muscles and leave everything else alone. I mean, the, this is a non-anatomic surgical approach, and everything else is the same. I mean, obesity, male, other risk factors there are present, and you're able to open the airway and let people sleep. So I think that's a very nice principle that this thing has revealed, and medications that might activate muscles or other stimulators that might uh, produce an opening of the nasopharynx as well as push the tongue forward. I don't think that this focus on the hypoglossal and on the tongue is the only thing that will succeed in uh, with in terms of stimulation. I think there are other approaches that will be discovered. So to summarize, hypoglossal nerve stimulation therapy has been trialed and approved in the United States as Inspire therapy, and it works by stimulating the hypoglossal nerve, which moves the genie glasses forward, as well as having the ability to open the nasopharynx. And in well-selected candidates, the surgery is quite effective as second-line therapy. However, it needs to be titrated and it needs to have adequate follow-up in order to obtain that effectiveness. Thank you so much, Dr. Stoll, for telling us about hypoglossal nerve stimulation. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. Thank you, Dr. May. It's been a pleasure.